On this episode of Take This Down, I have with me Mr. Barry King, and we're going to talk a little bit about his growing up in Louisville, Kentucky, growing up around Cassius Clay, his love and desire to grow up to be the successful artist he is today, and how he overcame dealing with depression. You're not going to want to miss this episode. Barry, I appreciate you joining me today on Take This Down podcast. It's a privilege and an honor. I, I truly have been looking forward to this conversation. So thank you. Absolutely. You, you know, it's a, a tradition of mine. I always, you know, uh, tell my guests why I wanted to invite them on the show and have this conversation. You know, I'm fortunately to, to know you right. and, and still getting to know you. And, right. and what I've grown to learn about you, it's you're the most interesting man I know. <laughs> and, and, I, and I truly mean that. And, and uh, hearing your story. You say that to all the guests. I promise you I don't. <laughs> and if I do, I mean it though. <laughs> and I'm just joking. I'm just joking. But uh, really and truly, you know, learning more about your story sure. uh, from sure. your upbringing to uh, some different things that you've overcome or even things, that, the successes that you had is Wow. Yeah. Wow. And I know I mentioned to you off camera, but if I had half of your success or half of your story, you know, then I've lived a good it's life. It's all a blessing, man. It all comes from above. You know, I is. have no idea how it all happened. <laughs> so, no, it is funny. Well, you know, let's just get right into it. Sure. So, who is Barry King at his core? Barry King at my core. It's funny. My mother, um, she taught us that we're five things. And she said, you're Barry part of the King clan, you're male, you're black, and you're American. She said, of those five, there's only one place that God will reside and help you, and that's just Barry. She said, um, like if I was to take my family and you and I were in a dispute, and I'm like, well, my family's this and your family, and then we, I started asking God to help me help my family. He doesn't enter into that. So he, although he created all five of those things, and everybody's one of those five, you'll become more, she said. So for me, I'm Barry. Uh, I'm proud to be part of the King family. I'm proud to be black. I'm proud to be American. Proud to be, you know, proud to be male. But of those things, I just try to live my life as Barry. You know, that, that it sounds simple. But that's 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 a lot to unpack because, you know, I think sometimes we go through life trying to be all those different things instead of focusing on that one most important part. Yeah. You know, she used to say kind of if you look at the world, kind of the turmoil is because we all want to pick one of those things and we identify with that first. And even though you and I are both, you know, African-American males. You're Todd and I'm Barry. And so, you know, your camera guy, you know, young white guy, it doesn't matter. We have to come together as our as who we are, because if we come together based on race, we're going to feel fear. And when we live our life with fear, that's why, to me, why the country and the world's where it's at today. 
And you know, that's a lot to unpack, but you know, I'm going to go just sure. We're going to walk a little bit slower yeah. line than that, but I like where we're going with the conversation. And so, with just hearing what your mom instilled with you, sounds like you had a very, you know, uh, family oriented, very structured upbringing. Talk a little bit about your, you know, how you grew up. Well, you know, my mom and dad very much, uh, you know, just traditional. I mean, very much we had to follow rules, you had boundaries and all that stuff. So just an old fashioned, you know, when I moved to Texas, I remember I called her and said, hey, Ma, George Bush, the governor, he started this thing called No Pass, No Play. She said, yeah, me and your dad started that. <laughs> you know, she, I mean, me and my older brother, we had some pretty tough punishments for not keeping our word about what we were supposed to do. So, you know, um, but it was loving. I mean, you know, but but yet, you, you knew the boundaries. Yeah. And so, you know, if I, my memory serves me well, you know, you grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. Right. You know, I can't think of the famous boxer that's from <laughs> Louisville, Kentucky. Like Cassius Clay. Cassius Tom, Clay. Muhammad or, Ali. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if I, you know, you're connected to yeah. Muhammad Ali. Yeah. I, uh, my dad trained him for his first pro fight, George King. And uh, first fight was in Louisville against a, uh, West Virginia chief of police, I forget the town, uh, named Tunney Hunsinker. <laughs> and uh, my dad was, yeah, I've got pictures and a little short video of him coming out of the ring, you know. But, yeah, he came. Then uh, Cash, he was still Cassius at that point. He came to uh, my older brother George's 12th birthday party, and he was like a big kid. He ate a whole bowl of potato salad and, you know, ran around with all us kids. But, yeah, it was it was amazing times so how was it growing up with the young Cassius Clay and seeing him kind of morph into you know this not only just the, the still the fun loving Cassius Clay that we've seen or documented or I should say I've seen and read about but you've seen first and to ultimately when you ran into him again as now he's Muhammad Ali this well he would come home I mean he in fact my my older brother and I were in Chicago and our mom was in a car accident. We didn't know about it. We were there for the summer with our cousin. And he heard about it. And I think he was, I don't know, he wasn't in town. But he came to Louisville to see my mom and check on her. Um, he just, you know, he was always, even though he was cast, he was just always who that person was, gotcha. my dad said. I mean, and um, just some, just, just bigger than life. Yes. When you looked at him, you thought, man, this is a hero. This is a real superhero. So he was just, just amazing. You know, and so growing up with your father being, uh, you know, the, the boxing trainer for Muhammad Ali, did you grow up wanting to be a boxer? <laughs> so one time he came home. That was after he had uh, had his jaw broke by uh, Ken Norton. And his mouth was wired shut, so he could, but he could still talk. He was still going to talk. So he came home, and my dad, we went around the corner to where he was at some friends, he, some friends' house that he was at. And so he hadn't seen me in a number of years. I think I was about fourteen. And so he asked my dad, he said, "You know, look, man, Barry, he's getting tall." And he put his, his arm out, and he said, "Put your arms up." He says, "So is any of them boxing, George?" And my dad said, "No, none of them boxing." He says. You look like you can box. You're kind of tall. I said, yeah. I said, no, nah, I'm an artist. And I said, but I'll draw me beating anybody you want to see. So he kind of <laughs> laughed. He said, oh, yeah, you got that lip, huh? I said, well, you know, so 
Now you, so you just said you're you're an artist. When did the you know you decide or you you knew that you wanted to be an artist or that that part of you was developed? Well, it's funny. Anything my older brother did as a kid, I wanted to do. And so we would draw. You know, when I was first, second, third grade, we would draw beatniks. And so then third grade, I entered a art contest. I did a painting of Jim Brown. I'm sure it looked like a kid's painting, but I guess it was pretty good. So I entered it in a UNICEF for Children art show. And uh, it was a worldwide art show for kids. And they had, I think, different levels and all. But anyway, so I was shocked when the art superintendent came to our school and to my class and gave me the award, said I'd won grand prize for them. And so that was it, man. That just knocked me out. And from that moment on, uh, so then I went to a free public library in Louisville. They, one summer they had uh, art classes. And so I went. And so the first class I went to, my mom picked me up and my dad. So they asked me to have a good time. And I was kind of quiet. I said, yeah. And my mom's like, is everything, is everything all right? I said, yeah. Teachers okay? Yeah. Students? Kids? Yeah. She said, good. I said, but I don't want to go back. And she said, why don't you want to go back? I said, I don't know. I just don't want to go back. She said, do you want to be an artist? And I said, well, yeah, I want to be an artist. She said, well, then you have to go back. So when I was about 16, 17, I remembered that. And so by then, I'm drawing and doing church programs and all kind of things. And I asked her, I said, Ma, you remember that time I didn't want to go back? And she said, to uh, the free public library art classes when I was like fourth grade. She said, yeah, I remember that. I said, do you know why I didn't want to go back? She said, of course, I know why you didn't want to go back. She said, do you know why you didn't want to go back? I said, yeah, I'm pretty sure I know why I didn't want to go back. She said, well, why? I said, because I think it was two things. I think it was the first time I had been away from my brother at some place just by myself and my family. And then I think I didn't feel comfortable because I don't remember, but I was probably one of the few black kids in that in that class. And so I, I said, so I think, but I think it was more the latter. I think it was because I didn't feel comfortable because our neighborhood, growing up in a, you know, all black neighborhood pretty much. And she said, well, yeah, that's why you didn't go back. I said, well, why didn't you have a talk with me about that? She said, because your dad's job and my job was to make sure if that's what you want to do, to do it. She said, you don't have a conversation about race with kids that young. She said, if you if we distract you and start talking about that, then that gives you, you feel infer an inferiority complex and you have to kind of fight through that. And she said, our job was if you want to be an artist, then go to take do the classes and continue to be an artist. You know, I love hearing the fact that, and I'm going to, not to minimize or summarize incorrectly, that your parents protected your innocence. You exactly. Know, that, right. it's that they knew that, hey, my son wants to be an artist. We're going to focus on the art and not all the extra noise because that, that's, that wasn't your place. And they knew that. Right. When I look at my grandson, he's four and a half. I think when sometimes like, when's he, when is he going to not just be I mean, Ari, my wife's going to kill me for that because <laughs> I call my son, my grandson, so I get those names mixed up. But she, I said, when is he going to stop being Ari and then have to bring all this other things, those other five, four things that I talked about? Mm -hmm. The world will make him feel like he has to make a choice about those things.
And my goal is that he will always just remember that he's Ari. And so with your core values and a, and a very strong upbringing, uh, did you go off to school to pursue art? or? Yeah, it's funny. I went to first I went to um, private art school in, in Annapolis, John Hearn School of Art. And didn't feel comfortable there. It was a you know very expensive school, and um, a lot of rich kids. I wasn't a rich kid, <laughs> so I left after about a month, month and a half. And then I went to Murray State University, and that was a four year school. In my high school, I had had art, commercial art, graphic design, three years, three hours a day. And my senior year, I had it for I was in art six hours a day because my English teacher was the art advisor of the yearbook and the school newspaper. So when I got to Mary State, I didn't want to be a school teacher, art teacher. And so we kind of fell out. I always wanted to be graphic design. And so I left there and I went to uh, Ivy Tech College, which is in a regional school across Indiana. And I went to the Sellersburg College in Southern Indiana to commercial art and got a, uh, uh, two-year degree there and so yeah so focus what what drew you to uh graphic art you know it's I, I think because of my high school the classes that i was taking those three hours a day for junior and uh, uh, uh freshman year sophomore year and then my uh senior year i did three you know like i said the three so that was a very intense graphic design we learned everything, lettering, typesetting, all kind of things. You know, you hear the saying, starving artists. You know, was that was that ever a, a fear of yours or you were always, you know, no, this is what I want to do regardless? No, I, that's what, I mean, I just, I knew I could have a career. I like graphic design, logos and that stuff. But at the same time, I was doing fine art because my first piece that I sold, I was in an art show, but the first piece I sold to a celebrity was the singer Billy Paul. And uh, he it was some friends of my dad's who knew Billy Paul. They paid me, commissioned me to do a portrait of him. So that was my first piece. I sold uh, pieces to Muhammad Ali, and they have a copy of one of the pieces in the Ali Center in the giving room. And so he wrote, so wrote me a note on the picture, and then it's hanging in our house. And then I sold the... Marvin Gaye uh, right. portrait, yeah. And so I think this is a perfect time. We, you know, we can kill the suspense because you are still to this day a very well accomplished, you know, artist. And Thank you, you know, I, you. I would be remiss if I didn't give you opportunity to at least plug your website, which your arts, at least go it's check very it out. Simple, <laughs> BarryKingArt.com. Yeah, and if you haven't seen any of Barry's art, I think you'd be blown away. And I, I'm still, you know, I, I go to your website periodically it. to look at it. And then, you know, I will say I can't afford everything, but maybe one of these days I'll uh, say, <laughs> I just tease it. Uh, no, I do commission work. I'm working on a piece right now that uh, someone commissioned me to do of Toni Morrison. Uh, I was in an exhibit uh, for African-American Black History Month at the Bush Library in Dallas and did a portrait of uh, his mom, Barbara, called Miss Barbara, and presented that to um, President Bush and uh, his wife, uh, Laura. No so he wrote me a real nice note. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, we're, we're just getting started. <laughs> uh, you know, we, so far we've heard about, you know, your your artwork for Muhammad Ali and now for President Bush. And, you know, it's 
like I mentioned, you know, very. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's been it's interesting. And so, so when I when I graduated, I came to uh, Texas, came to Dallas, and um, I was working in a Zell store in Louisville. And I used to bug the president about coming to Dallas, coming to Dallas. So. When I graduated, they hired me and moved me to Dallas, and I worked at Zales in the advertising department for the catalog showroom. And then I was there, I was with the company five years, four years in Dallas, and then I was hired at a Radio Shack and was 22 years there. Uh, started out as senior graphic designer and assistant art director, art director, creative director, and then I was the first. Uh, Black uh, vice president at Radio Shack. Gotcha. And so what point in that career did you kind of transition to uh, commercials and, and other type of? Well, there, you know, I didn't go to school. I mean, we we were doing national commercials and we'd sign Howie Long, Terry Hatcher, Vanessa Williams, Ving Rains, and a number of celebrities. So we had this campaign. You've got questions, we've got answers. And so I just would, you know, my job was... I had 75 people that worked for me, art directors and writers and all. And so I just observed. And so one day, one of the directors, Matt Penn, uh, said to me, he said, you could do this. And I said, really? You think so? He said, oh, yeah. And so started just observing. And so then I started kind of directing a few of the commercials. And so And then one of our directors, Nick Cassavetes, who did the movie The Notebook, uh, he calls me one summer and says uh, he wanted me to be in the movie John Q with Denzel. And I'm like, you don't have to do that to get work. <laughs> and he said, no, I want you to do it. I said, I've seen you on the set and I know you can handle it. And so he was famous for putting his friends and different people in movies. And so I played a personnel uh, manager in a factory and he Denzel comes in and I do the interview and so it's just weird that that's, that's not, you know. I mean, you know, you sit here and you just so casually say, oh, I was in John Q, which is one of Denzel's most, you know, biggest movies. And you also have a very meaningful part of that movie, which kind of creates the spiral for what ultimately yeah. happened. And you and you, you just said, uh, just, you know. Uh, no, no. Well, it's funny because Leah's the one said, when we read the script, she read the script and Leah said, uh, to me, she said, well, they can't cut you out of the movie. I'm like, what are you talking about? They can always cut, you can always end up on the cutting room floor. She said, no, you're too instrumental. You're the one that makes him go over the edge and this. She said, well, so no, you'll, you'll definitely be in the movie. So that was, you know, it's surprising. It's funny. I get friends. People have called me. and Man, I was watching television. People I haven't heard from in years. Was that you in that movie? I said, yeah, that was me. So. And so now, you you know, you get the, you're a big movie star. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. And, You know, is, is there other opportunities to be in, you know, movies no, or commercials no. or one time? No, that, that was just one time. It's funny, there's a thing called a Taft-Hartley law that uh, you can be in one without joining the union and all that. So I still get, you know, I still get residual checks every <laughs> month. Like, I mean, every quarter I get a check. And so that's kind of funny. I mean, it's... You know, it's enough to go to McDonald's or something. But, hey, you know, you're, you're paid. But yeah, it's funny. I, who was it? Somebody found my name on uh, IMDb there in the credits and all that stuff. So, you know, 
It's strange. <laughs> and so, you know, you have this very uh, successful professional career, mm-hmm. well accomplished, you know, uh, at what point or if, if there is a point, he's like, okay, you know, I feel like I've reached the pinnacle or I don't want to do something different. Well, uh, in uh, 2007, my brother and I started a gourmet sauce company and we were, uh, we had, virtually just had a uh barbecue sauce and we had ended up with three barbecue sauces a wing sauce and it was we were in central market we were in about 11 states across the country and we were central market market street whole foods kroger and then um, we ended up having to close it down uh, i had some illness and then uh, uh, the co-packer we were using was bought by the the main product they were making because we got really good pricing because we were using some of the same ingredients. They bought another comp- company that our co-packer was using. So they, you know, that kind of forced us out because they just needed so much production line. How did you go from, you know, this, this career with, you know, Tandy Radio Shack to being a you know, a pit master developing a barbecue sauce that sold across 11 states. Well, real, I, I got to hear the transition. Well, real quickly, I mean, my dad and my brothers, uh, my younger brother, Daryl, who was a chef in Phoenix, and my older brother, George, who's been a headmaster. My, he, them and my dad were going to do a cook-off, and I'm living in Texas, and they didn't even think I'd want to be interested. I'm like, what are you talking about? So we all decided to do this cook-off, and everybody was supposed to make their own sauce, so I called Daryl, and I'm like, how do you make barbecue sauce? He said, just go to the store, get some ketchup, and then grab stuff off the shelf you like, put in it, and see what happens. And so I did it. Luckily, I did it one time. I wrote, luckily, I wrote it down. And then I, you know, started making it. And so a friend of mine that I used to work at Radio Shack, uh, Steve Dunning, his son, uh, he, Steve, I would give it to friends and family and stuff. And so, he would only serve it to his family if he poured it on the plate. <laughs> his son, I think he was probably about nine, he said, Dad, you act like this stuff's gold. So when we started the company, me and my brother, we didn't care about having our last name on the jar or anything. So we just decided to name it. The company was called Brother Sauces, and then the sauce was we, the first one we called Brother's Gold. <laughs> gotcha. So that was it. And we were number one sauce at uh, Central Market for a number of years. And, yeah. You still know how to make Brother's Gold? Oh, yeah. I still make it. I'm still, still waiting for him to try it. All right. Well, I'll get you a job. <laughs> okay. And so, you, you know, you transition, you, you're running. Yeah. You know, so I do that. And then, um, you know, it kind of got to where we, you know, I didn't, we tried to find pricing, somebody that could make ourselves competitively, and we just couldn't. So, you know, our dad always said, you know, don't let your ego get in the way of your good common sense. So we ended up, just shut it, but you know we didn't want to shut it um, where we were losing money. You know, you know sometimes people just keep hanging on. Hanging. Right, right. We hated losing. It's still, I go in Central Market and they tell me people still come in and ask for it six, seven years later. But it, you know, so I, I was going through that and just some depression, and you know, you feel a worthlessness. You know, when you've had the successes, and you kind of go, well, you know. Maybe this is it. And I deal with depression. I was diagnosed with depression uh, 32 years ago. So I just hit a point where it's like, you know, I didn't want to be here. You're very open with about, you know, 
battling and, and handling and living with uh, depression, and, you know, and I've seen and you've heard your story and, you know, I don't know if my whole audience is, is, is familiar with, but if you're comfortable, you know, love to kind of hear sure. your story from where you were with your depression to how you are here still today. Well, I always say it this way. Your audience should have never met me. In fact, I think you and I met. I was going through that bout of very traumatic bout of depression in uh, 2016, and I met you just a few years ago. Yeah. We all had dinner, our wives and all. And so you should have never met me. And so what happened, I was just so depressed on this one particular day, and I tell people, when you're at a point where you want to take your life, what's your, what's your, the reason you're trying, for me, I can't speak for everyone, but me as a survivor on this side of it, I can say what I think a lot of people go through is you feel a certain pain. It's not a Tylenol pain. It's not a, it's not a pain that, and you just want it to stop. So I've been kind of feeling this pain for a while and you end up. And so on that particular day, I'd taken my mother-in-law to the doctor. No one knew where I was mentally. I can't even say I knew early in the day, but I just hit a point that day. So that night, uh, Leah went to bed. I was usually downstairs working on the computer, doing some drawing or something. So she thought I was downstairs, which is where I was. And then I left. And so when I left, I went and checked into a little hotel. And just so happened... And I don't know what your audience beliefs are, and that's all personal. But for me, I think what happened, she heard my iPad make a ding, because whenever you use my credit card, I mean my bank card, it would send a message if it's over $50. Well, the hotel was over $50. She heard the ding, but she didn't pay no, didn't think anything about it. And so when I checked in, so then I go and I had sent letters to my brothers and my son and all, and to her. And so I went check when I checked in, I I was very calm about it. It's like, and here's what's weird. This is, you know, sometimes there's something that'll stop you. So I think because I it wasn't the first time I've ever contemplated it, but you think like, oh, I don't want to do that. It hurt my wife. It'll hurt this. It'll hurt that. You know, I just. On my way to the hotel, that night was the same night Muhammad Ali died. Wow. That did not Because usually I would have like, oh, man, I need to go home and go to the funeral. and all that. I was so done, finished with this life and wanting that pain to stop. So I go in, I take all my prescription meds, and I took 124 pills, prescription wow. medicine which was enough. And I read about it before, you know me, I'm going to get the details down. And so I read about the medicines that I have. I didn't take the bottles because I didn't want them to find what I had taken. I'd taken everything in a Kleenex. And so uh, once I took it, as I'm reading about it, it was enough to, so if you take this much, it'll kill you. If it doesn't kill you, it'll leave you with something wrong, physically, organs or something. So I took enough to kill four people. So when I think of that, and so then I go, and so then Leah calls, and when I come, she comes downstairs, I'm not there, my car is gone. She calls, tries to make a business report, person's report. They say, well, he's grown and hadn't been 24 hours and all that. So she remembered hearing that iPad 
and she looks at it and sees that I checked it into the hotel and uh, uh, called the hotel and they said, yeah, he's here. And so they, she asked them to go check. And so they came back and uh, said, he's just, you know, he's asleep. And by then that was a couple hours after I'd taken the meds. And so she said, call the police and the police that came found me and rushed me to John Peter Smith Hospital. And so I was in a coma for three days and my body was shutting down, organs, blood pressure, 60 over 30. I mean, I'm just, I'm, and they asked her, did I have a DNR? Because they could not bring me back. And so on the third day, I woke up. And so when I look back, I don't need the Pope. I don't need any. I know there's a God. I know that personally because I should not have, you should have never met me. You know, one first, I, appreciate, you know, you being willing to be vulnerable, but also uh, sharing your story because you, you never know who the sound of your voice is going to impact the touch. But, you know, I think it's important, you know, that's it's unintentional, but, you know, May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And obviously there's a lot of people who live with right. depression and that don't come out on the other side on that third day. So, no, it's, you know, so when I get out, people don't realize when you try to commit suicide, you lose all your rights in terms of making decisions. And it's not like your family. So what happens in John Peter Smith, they have a judge there. And so the judge determined I needed to go into mental uh, treatment center, health, mental health hospital. And that, that was my third time that I had been. So that Monday, uh, they took me to a hospital and I knew I needed to go. I didn't, I mean, I didn't fight it. And so I was there for about a week. And so then I came home and, you know, when I come out, I'm like, I'm asking God, like, what do you want me to, why did you keep me here? What, what am I supposed to do? And so what I, what I determined was uh, that I would dedicate the rest of my life to uh, telling my story, doing anything I could do uh, to try to remove the stigma of, of depression and suicide and all that stuff. And how do you go about doing that? Because, you know, you, I see Barry from the, the ex, external and, you know, I see a very successful businessman who had this great life, but obviously we don't know what, what goes on inside of people. So how do you go about your advocacy, if you will? It's funny, a friend of mine uh, introduced me to a woman who, her daughter had uh, committed suicide. Her and her husband's daughter had committed suicide. So called the Jordan Elizabeth Harris uh, Foundation. So they asked me and, you know, interviewed me and heard my story and we talked. And so I'm on the board there. And uh, Tom and Ellen Harris are just amazing people. And in fact, this will be coming up, will be 10 years that they've lost their daughter. And they do a lot of great, the organization does a lot of great work in the, in, in the city and, you know, in Texas here. But I know that they traded all to have Jordan back. You know, I, I wasn't lucky enough to get to meet Jordan, but you can, you know, her spirit's there. They, the things that we've been able to do as an organization have been pretty, pretty successful and helped a lot of people. That's, That's awesome. You know, you, you mentioned that this is something that you've, you know, endured in battle for 32 years and, right. and, and not to get, you know, make this, you know, go back to one of the five things about being sure. black, but, you know, mental health is not often something that's, 
talked about or or, or pushed to the side in you know minority communities. Well, minority communities, men especially, we won't you know we don't open up. What I love is the fact that a lot of professional athletes in the last say three to five years have started to tell their stories. It's just you know I tell people, and I take look. I'm better at taking my antidepressants. I'm as I won't say, but I'm as good at taking my antidepressants as women are taking birth control pills, <laughs> any any pill you need to take. In essence, mental health, mental illness is no different than a physical illness. I take blood pressure. If you you know if you got high blood pressure, yeah. you take that. Well, if you you know my brain doesn't make serotonin, so I need to have something that supplements that. If I don't. Then, you know, right. So I don't, you know, I try to just convince people it's no different because it's mental and it's not anything that makes you, you know, you shouldn't feel embarrassed about it. It is what it is. That's why I view it. No, that's good. That's good. And I'm glad that, you know, whatever God put you through, had you go through, that you came on the other side and I was able to meet you and still have you here today. You know, to me, it's like, no way am I comparing me in terms of stature to a Magic Johnson. But in my own small way, I try to do what he did uh, with uh, AIDS, you know, HIV. And, you know, he changed this world because here people saw this big strapping athlete, like, oh, my God, he's got it. And he said, I'm, you know, he lives, he's still alive, very successful. That's not the primary part of who he is, but he will talk about that. So, you know, for me, it's just whoever uh, my words may help, then I've done what God kept me here to do. That's the way I view it. More than art, more than anything. Uh, you know, kept me here to do that. And then second, to be Leah King's husband and Ian King's dad and Ari King's grandfather. You know, it's funny. It's almost like you're reading my mind because where I was going to go in your story that you talk about, you know, you mentioned, you know, your wife, Leah, right. uh, being there and, and essentially finding you and sure. even creating this whole, the, the the price to put you back. How is it being married to such a strong woman? I feel like I'm married to a strong woman, but, you know, uh, sometimes men have a hard time of taking a backseat. You know, it's funny, Lee and I, before we were married, we talked about our belief system. And, you know, we're very traditional in terms of Christian belief system and our roles, my role as, as a husband and dad and all that. But I try to tell young guys, because you're the head of the household, that means protecting the family. Doesn't mean you're making all the decisions. I don't, I mean, she's far smarter. She's the smartest person I've ever known. And she's, you know, she's so smart in areas that I could only dream about. So you find that balance um, in terms of those things. But, you know, you just, I think guys, and I think the younger guys that are coming up behind, well, you're behind me. It's not that long. You never are too far. (laughs) But, you know, the guys that are coming up behind me and even behind you, they're just smarter. They're they're not into, you know, they don't, they're not so materialistic and things in terms of getting hired. I read articles about, they care about what the companies 
uh, social strategy. What are they into? What do they care about? Not so much about how many vacation days and all that stuff. So it's just hopefully, you know, but I think that's whether they know it or not, that I think it's kind of that they're who they are. You know, I'm going to say this. I say this jokingly, but I joke with my uncles about this, and I, uh, I'm not trying to put an age on you or anything like that, but I tell them, I said, you 70s men are whole, cut from a whole different cloth well, than other generations. Yeah, I'm 67, <laughs> we'll be 68. But yeah. And so I say that, to, you know, you hearing you, you know, how you place it in perspective, uh, you know, we, we're traditional in a sense, but I understand my wife is stronger in some areas, oh. and I'm going to lift her up rather than trying to silence her. So that's, you know, it's, I would say it's not a lot of 70s men, like, you know, 1970s men, as I jokingly say, that have that type of belief. So hearing that from you. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I mean, I've lived a lot of life and personal life and family life as a kid. And, you know, my parents ended up divorced. But it's funny that uh, when it came to these three boys, they could get together. You know, they they got together when it came to making sure we were following the rules and being in line and all of that. And it's one of the most, to me, one of the most beautiful stories I've ever heard was when my mom was passing. My mom got sick and, you know, uh, she had to come to Texas to live out the final days of her life. And my older brother, George, flew her, flew her on a plane here. And so they were at the airport in Louisville, and then all of a sudden up walks our dad. And they had been married at 16 and 18. He was 18, she was 16. And even though they had then, by then, they had been divorced probably 35, 40 years. But you always knew they were the love of each other's lives. And so my brother said, he looked up, and here comes daddy coming to the airport to see my mom off and so he walked off and gave them their time so you know divorce is a horrible thing but man nothing beats love right. there's just nothing that can beat love in this world you know you ultimately went out right right even what's going on in this world country whatever i 100 percent agree you know i think uh love is one of the most important thing a person can feel and to have yeah. Uh, but, you know, you, you, you just mentioned it then and like what's going on in the world and you talking about it now. And, you know, you're not a shy person with your your thoughts and belief. And, you know, when you when you see, you know, I'm going to kind of focus here sure. on Fort Worth and Tarrant sure. County. Are you hopeful for, you know, our community as a whole? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, look, there's always <laughs> there's no perfect communities, period. Doesn't matter about how much money, what racial makeup, whatever. In my Bible study this year, we did a study, uh, Bible study fellowship. We studied uh, Old Testament, Israel, and the Minor Prophets. And man, Second Kings, <laughs> man, man has never changed. Human beings haven't changed. It's always about oppressing someone. It's always about uplifting someone. Mm-hmm. And so the only difference in man is technology, cars, iPhones. We got more stuff, but the human spirit has always been the same. I mean, so in terms of Fort Worth, I have a lot of hope. I love Fort Worth. I mean, for me, it's the best city in Texas, period. 
nothing against there's bigger ones, richer ones, faster ones. It's just something about this city that uh, people are as straightforward as I've seen. Yeah. That's good. And, and so, you know, as a person and a man who's accomplished so much, you've seen the world, uh, do you still feel motivated to accomplish things? Or now do you oh, feel yeah. like you're just, no, you know, no. I've, I've done enough? Uh, see, I only think about these accomplishments when people like you <laughs> want to talk about them. And, I, and I'm glad to talk about them. But I mean, I don't walk around thinking about, hey man, you know, you know, I'm blessed. Those are blessings. Right. Those are all blessings from seeing Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay come to my brother's twelfth birthday party, all the way to sitting here with you. I mean, this is a, this is my most important moment. This one right here, not the one yesterday, but this one right here, and the next one will be. You know, that's the way I live it. Right. So. And so when we look up, we're 30, 40 years from now, and, you know, you're still doing your philanthropy. <laughs> 30 years of the, you know, I'll be 97. You're, you're still I'll active still. doing your philanthropy, you know, providing awareness for depression, you know, and we're at your retirement party. Right. We're, we're at your third or fourth <laughs> retirement party at this point. Uh, how do you want to be remembered? That I gave it all I had. I did try to do everything I could humanly possible do. And that my story is far from the greatest one. And just, you know, I just try to love people. I love I just love people. I love people. I like I just like people. And you know, <laughs> so many stories I could tell you that People have tried to put me in a box, and I just won't let. It's just not going to put me, and don't let anybody put any. Who who has the right to put anybody in a box? Right. I mean, you're you know you come into this uh, law firm here. I mean, when you were twelve, did you think you would be in the position you're in? No, no, not at all. No. So for me, it's about encouraging. You know, Leah says, well, everybody doesn't know at the third grade that they want to be an artist or what they want to be, and I agree. But I say we have to find out what our kids want to be and encourage them to do that. Now, you know, if I had a dream of say, well, I want to be the center for the Dallas Mavericks, well, that's, that's, that's not possible. But I can, if I want to be around sports, you could take that child and say, hey, or tell her, you know, become a writer, become an agent, become this, become that. It's... You know, that's good. That's good. You know, this conversation has been everything that I thought it would be. Uh, <laughs> well, I appreciate you it. You know, and I'm glad that I know you have a lot of opportunities, but I'm glad that you allowed me to sit down and have this conversation and learn a little bit more about you, but also be willing to share it with our audience. So really and truly, thank you for Absolutely. your time. And, Absolutely. and I know off camera, I'm going to uh, hear a little bit more about these stories, too. All right. I appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I have. And Barry, really and truly, thank you for sharing your Absolutely. story. And, you know, I hope if we make the impact of just one person, Absolutely. Uh, we've done our job. But thank you really and truly again. Absolutely.